0: well we look at what he says here in verse 21 it says there that the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam he puts him to sleep he, after he goes to sleep he opens Adam up and he takes one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh where he had taken that rib out and he takes that rib and he forms or he creates a woman it says that he made into a woman and then he brought her to Adam or to the man Now, sometimes when we read this, we read over to study it, where we sort of leave it is, well, this is a description of of a physical procedure. (laughs) How did women come to be? Well, God took a rib out of man. Man had already been created. took a physical rib out of man and made it into a woman. And so there was this physical procedure that took place. And that that's what's involved. I'm convinced that there was a physical procedure. I don't want to be misunderstood there. I don't think we're talking about simply metaphorical language. But the use of this terminology, particularly in the New Testament, would drive me to be convinced as well that it means more than that. That what the text is explaining to us and describing to us is more than just God taking a rib out of a man in, in some mysterious way, making a woman out of that physical rib. That what's being described here is a splitting of an individual, that Adam is split into two people, and the two people then are very unique individuals. That what's described here in the creation of woman is someone that would be likened to man or be a complement to man. And that's what the text really indicates to us, doesn't it? Preface that with the idea here, with with the situation where all the animals are brought to Adam and he gives them names and looking for a companion. There's not in any of the other animal creations on the planet. There's not anyone that or anything that corresponds to the creation of man. So Adam is alone. And God says it's not good for Adam to be alone and therefore he creates woman and this is the process by which he creates woman is he takes a rib out of man and he makes a woman. And what the, the creation of the woman the appearance of the woman is in essence a result of splitting Adam into two people. Now we know that because you see these two unique individuals are precisely designed for each other. They're not, simple, they're, they're, they're not opposites of one another and they're not the idea here that they're, uh, that they're unique in their own personal way and have no connection. The fact that the woman came out of the man is precisely what God is presenting to us. We say, well, what was Adam like before he was split in two? I don't know. I don't know that we could ever know the answer to that question from the text of the Scriptures. But we notice that what it tells us in verse 23 is that Moses says that God took her from man. And so she came out of the man, or she was taken from the man, and that that's the reason she's called woman. So it seems as though the idea of the splitting of the man... And creating of two, two individuals out of one individual is a part of the meaning of the text. But Adam's observation of what God has just done, again, is insightful. And sometimes, sometimes, I believe, we as well may uh, over, make this too simple for us, or at least pass over it without a, a greater understanding of its significance. Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, does that mean that she is his physical complement? Well, certainly it does. Other texts would, would recognize that as well. But the comment by Moses and the quotations of the text in the New Testament they're going to look at indicate there's more to this particular statement than just this physical element, that man and woman are complement one another physically. What Moses says after that, and notice that this is Moses' comment, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become... One flesh. Now, we tend to view again this particular statement in physical terms. That what this describes, and and, and many occasions I've used it exactly to describe that, a physical geographical leaving of a mother and of fa- of a of a, of a, of a, a husband uh, leaving his mother and father, leaving the home of his parents, and going and joining himself to his wife. And they become one flesh by having sexual union and that, that marriage is consummated sexually and therefore they are become one flesh. And so we tend to view this simply in physical terms, geographical terms. A person leaves one place, goes to another place and they become one flesh. But I'm convinced that that doesn't capture all that's involved in this. And the reason I would say that is that later on the book of Genesis talks about the birth of children, the sexual union between men and women. Consider Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. It says says in the text there uh, that that the man had relationships with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Same two people come together in a sexual union and have a child. What it doesn't say is that they became one flesh again. It doesn't indicate this aspect of the one flesh, that particular language, in the aspect of the sexual union. So... What we recognize is that sex and becoming one flesh, though they may include one of the other, they are not exclusive in the sense that that's exactly what that means and that's all that it means. They are not identical in the phrase. So we can't just leave that phraseology with the aspect of sexual union and come to a full understanding of what's being talked about and what's being told us about the relationship between a man and a woman. What does it mean to become one flesh? The Bible give us an answer about that. Can we come to any other conclusions about what it means to become one flesh? Well, I think what we, we also recognize in this is that uh, the statement that's made by, uh, the statement that's made by uh, Adam uh, opens up our understanding of uh, this aspect of what they actually become. Man's observation, Adam's observation, as we said before, is this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's what Adam said. Now, who's he say it to? Well, he doesn't say it to the woman. The statement is made to God, not to Eve. And so, sometimes we look at this again that, that, that man is so impressed with what appears before him in the, in the woman that he says, you are now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. He doesn't say it to Eve. The text would indicate that he says it to God. So, Adam is not simply telling Eve that you're just what I was looking for. That you, you, you're, you're beautiful, you're just what I wanted. You, you, you fill up all the holes that I have. Now maybe she did that. Maybe she was. But certainly what he's expressing here, not only is exuberance over what God has done, but he's recognizing that what is presented here is a special relationship. And again, he had been looking for a companion in the other creation, and there was none. So when God does what he does in taking the rib and making a woman, what he recognizes is that what's been created here is not just another being, But a very special relationship. And Moses narrows it even further for us in the text, does he not? That this is a special relationship between a man and a woman. But it's not a special relationship between all men and between all women. All men do not become one flesh with all women. In the context of what happens later on or what the aspect even of marriage is. What is found in the text is the aspect of the relationship between Adam and Eve. That's what's under discussion, and that's what you see Adam is talking about. That's what he's addressing. One man and one woman become one flesh. It's the splitting of a man into two, and that's what God recognized. Or that's what Adam recognized, and that's certainly what Moses presents to us. But there are other ways in which we can, I think, come to a better understanding of this. This idea of what it means to be one flesh you are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, is to look at ways that this particular phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture. The concepts that are involved in you are of me, you are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, is voiced in other contexts that don't involve this aspect of sexuality or even of the marriage relationship. Consider a couple of them. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 14, and we're going to look at just a few of these and you can read them along. As we uh, as we look at them, i are not going to read all the scriptures that are involved here. But you remember the you you remember the event of of uh, Jacob and Esau, where uh, there was treachery and, and deceitfulness, and uh, and Jacob was feared for his life because it, he had he had stolen from his brother, uh, and it became obvious that he had to get out of town. Uh, and his mother, not wanting to you see, put him just out the door and to protect him. Said, "Well, you know." My, my brother's over there. Laban, he's over there. You can go to his house. And you can flee to his house. And so that's what takes place, is that Jacob then goes to Laban, uh, to his uncle's house. And it says in verse, tw- in verse 29 that when Laban saw him, and remember that he had, he had in the process he met Rachel, the one who would become later on his wife, that Laban, in verse 14, that Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Now Joseph and Laban didn't get married. When he says, you are my bone and you are my flesh, what's he saying? What's he telling Jacob? I recognize something about you. You're not just anybody. You're not just a stranger on the street. You and I are family. We are flesh and blood. You are bone of my bones and you are flesh of my flesh. Now what did that mean? Well, in the context of the story, it meant that Laban was saying to Jacob, I'm going to treat you special. You're going to have privileges. You're going to have opportunities that I wouldn't give to anybody. I'm going to protect you and take care of you. You can come in and live in my house. We'll share responsibilities. You can work for me. Now, Laban didn't treat Jacob the way he should have been treated. That's obvious what comes in the story. But we look at this aspect of what it meant. We recognize that this phrase itself, that you are bone of my bones and you are flesh of my flesh, had to do with this aspect of relationship. And what it involved, you see, is that there were responsibilities, along with special privileges that are associated with being in the family. You are a family. Now, it had economic implications for Jacob as well. You think about... Another case where that sort of becomes obvious is in the case of Abraham and Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And they went to possess the land of Canaan. And you remember that Abraham gave Lot the choice of the land. I'll go over here in the plains. And so Lot goes over near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and settles down. But it's not very long before the kings of that area raid Sodom and Gomorrah. And they take Lot captive and haul off his family. Abraham hears about this. Now, what does it mean for Abraham to hear about the fact that his nephew is gone? Well, it meant he had to do something. And that's exactly what takes place, isn't it? He gathers his men together and he takes his hundreds of men and he goes after those kings. He defeats them with God's help and he brings his nephew and his family back and he rescues them. Now, why did he do that? He said, because we are brothers. Because we are family. There was implication to that. That there, were the, 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 there had to be protection. Economic implications, protection, all of that was involved. Another place where this particular phrase is used is in the ninth chapter of Judges. Jerubal, which is also goes by the name of Gideon in the Old Testament, was a judge of Israel that God used to free them from the oppression of the Midianites. And interesting enough, Gideon had 70 sons. One of his sons obviously had more than one wife, but he had 70 sons. And one of his sons was the child of his concubine in the city of Shechem, named Abimelech. And when Jehubel died, Abimelech petitioned the men of Shechem. He came to him and said, Okay, there's 70 of us, of the sons of Do You want all these guys reigning over you, or do you want me? And he went to his mother's family. Went to his, you see, that side of the family and says, You know that we are family. And that's what he says in that particular context. He says, We are flesh of flesh and bone of bone. And what he was saying to them, we're connected here. We're family. We're flesh and blood. So if anybody's going to reign over you, if you're going to be on anybody's side and choose, you should choose me. And so they do that. And they favor Abimelech because of the fact that he was, that he made that appeal to them. And they say to him, he is our brother. And so he makes the appeal by saying, I am your bone and your flesh. They conclude, yes, that means you are my brother, you are my relative. So what's it mean? To be bone to bone and flesh and flesh, it means that you're connected. But this connection, of course, is the aspect of loyalty. You should be loyal to me, and I will expect I will be loyal to you and protect you because we have this relationship together. We are family. We're on the same team. And so, there again, we see the connection. In Second Samuel chapter five, in the in, in, in the life of David, after it's Absalom, remember Absalom rises up to take David's place, and there's this rift in the family, and David has to run from his own son and be away from Jerusalem, the capital, sort of suspend the aspect that he's going to be king because his son is so rebellious, and then Absalom dies, and David then returns to to to, to, to rule over the people and to continue in the way that God would have him to do, and it says it in Second Samuel chapter five again this aspect that. Israel claims to David that we are connected, that we are blood, that we are flesh and blood. You are of us. Now, it's interesting that he used, that use that terminology of blood and of, of, of flesh and bones when David was not physically related to all of Israel. Now, later on, he uses that terminology to talk about Judah. But even Judah itself, the tribe, probably couldn't genetically prove that they were all connected to David. So it meant more than just family, what they were saying when they were saying we are flesh and blood, they were saying we're in a special relationship with you. We're together. What they were saying to David is that we're on your team. You can count on us. And then it says in the text that David made a covenant with them. It says that David made a covenant with them before the Lord. So when they say we're on your team, David says, okay, we're going to get in an agreement here. We're going to, I'm going to have a covenant with you and God's going to witness the covenant that we're making together. Now, what was the implications of God witnessing the covenant between David and Israel at this time? It's that if any one of them broke the covenant, that God would be in a position, necessarily by implication, to punish the violator. That God's judgment against the violator would be brought out because there was an agreement based upon, you see, this relationship. In a moment we're going to talk about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, but you remember what the writer of Hebrews says about marriage. Marriage is honorable among all. And the bed is undefiled, but the fornicator and adulterers, God will judge. That's the language of a covenant, is it not? That's exactly what was involved in the making of a covenant between two people. That bringing a witness in meant that if, if one of you guys violates this, I I know about it. I've witnessed it, and therefore God says I can judge it. But we mentioned again David in Second Samuel chapter nineteen that he identifies the elders of Judah. He says, "You are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh," and then he calls them brothers. And he says that they will be joined together as one man. Where do you get that language? Where'd that come from? For David to stand up and Jesus said, We are bone, we are flesh and bone, and we will be one person. You see, that's the concept that was addressed, that was introduced in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 in marriage. Now it's being applied to other relationships, but we have to recognize that these other times in which we see it help us to understand what it actually meant in the very beginning. And so what does this tell us? The different uses of this particular phraseology in different places in the Old Testament. The ideas that are involved here are allegiance. The aspect of family that we're connected together. That people are on the same side. That they're on the same team when they are one flesh. And when they are bone by bones and flesh by flesh. So you see, when we just take those Old Testament passages in Genesis 2 about marriage and we simply apply them to the sexual union, we're missing out on what the fuller meaning of this particular terminology is. And by that, I believe, we may very well miss out in uh, some very important concepts that address the aspect of marriage. So the marriage covenant is viewed in the context of how these other things are used. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Moses' comment on the bringing in the woman, and on what Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, is to say, for this reason, shall a man leave his father and mother be joined to his wife. For this reason. For what reason? Well, the reason here is what Adam just said to God. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so, Adam acknowledges the fact that God has created a different, unique, special relationship And Moses says, this is the reason a man leaves his father and mother. This is the reason why he leaves that first allegiance in order to join the second allegiance because this is a special relationship. And so the marriage covenant involved this aspect of a change of primary allegiance. And that's what Genesis 2 is presenting to us here, at least some of that aspect of what about marriage. Before they were loyal to their parents now they're shifting their primary allegiance doesn't mean they're going to ignore their parents or they have any, uh, they have any you see, uh, opportunity to, to neglect their parents it's not validating that at all but the primary allegiance you see of a man and a woman to each other is to each other and even though it's spoken of from a male perspective I believe that it applies in both directions and that's what's being established here so the husband and the wife get primary allegiance to each other. They are joined together. And in that respect then, they involve, this joining together involves special privileges. And the terminology that's used would imply this in the way that we've used it already. That these special privileges involve loyalty, economic mingling, the aspect of sexual mingling, and protection. That they come into the relationship. It's more than just we are husband and wife in name. It's more than just the aspect we're joined in a legal process or a procedure. And it's more than just the sexual joining that takes place that consummates a marriage. But rather it is all of these things combined into this special relationship. We mentioned before about Abraham taking on the responsibility to protect his nephew Lot, his his own people. Why? Because they were family. They are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So what is it involved here? Well there's a focus on this aspect of a mutual belonging. When A man and a woman are married when they become one flesh they seek the benefits of the other for the very perspective and reason of being joined together in one flesh. And so what it tells us about marriage are some very important profound things that in the very beginning when God was using this language to describe the creation of woman and the joining of Adam and Eve in that first union he was giving us the very foundation of every marriage that would follow after that. And that is that That one person seeks the benefit of the other. That they are one flesh. And the fact that they are one person means that they can't possibly. It's absolutely incongruous for them to seek anything but the good of the person to which they are joined. And what it's telling us about marriage is that marriage is not about a single individual within the union. Marriage is not about me. And it's not about my wife. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. And that's the way it has to be understood. It's not even about you and me in the sense that it's a negotiated truce. And that's the way a lot of folks look at marriage. And I think that's the idea of maybe the distinction between contract and covenant uh, in terms of the understanding of marriage comes into play. But marriage is not a negotiated truce. It's not a tit for tat. You do do this for me and I'll do this for you and, and, and we'll make an agreement about this and we'll just get along. It's deeper than that. And this language would point that out. It's about a single entity. Not two entities that just learn to get along. But a single entity acting as a single person. In Ephesians chapter 5. You know this is the text uh, that we most look at when we talk about the responsibilities of marriage is Paul's uh, words in Ephesians chapter 5. And I would take you not to the beginning in verse 22 where it says beginning that wives should submit to their own husbands. Or even to husbands loving their own wives in verse 25. I would take you all the way back to verse 21 In the beginning of that discussion when Paul says you submit to one another in the fear of God. That this mutual submitting to one another is precisely what this aspect of one flesh is all about. Or becoming one person. And so he says submit to one another in the fear of God. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore just as the church is subject to Christ so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves loves his wife loves himself. Now draw attention to that last phrase, because though he's talking about the husband, that is a summary statement about what he said about both the wife and the husband in the relationship. That the reason that a husband or wife would treat the other person the way God would have them to treat them in submission and sacrificial love and care is because they are a single person. And so so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now that's not just, I think, a portrayal of self-love. Sometimes we get in discussion about self-love but whether or not self-love is good or bad. It's almost implied in the passage. I think that it's there that a person would love himself. But what Paul's really emphasizing is that she is you, and he is you. They are one person. And so, in the Ephesians five text, the level of allegiance reaches that statement, doesn't it? It reaches all the way that they are one body, they are one flesh. Now, the fascinating one of the fascinating parts about that is that, is that that's not just New Testament teaching. That's not some newfangled, revealed approach to marriage. That's the foundational language of the very beginning of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. That's the deeper significance of those statements that we dare not miss. That no one ever hates his own flesh. If you destroy her, you destroy yourself. If you destroy him, you destroy yourself. And that people do not destroy people that are on their own team, that are they are family, that are together with one another, they encourage one another and they build them up. That's not just the responsibility of marriage. That's the foundational definition and substance of marriage. Now, how if it goes the other way, how bad is it? Well, again, the language would point out that the breaking of the one-body symbolism, of the one-flesh symbolism, is a serious thing. What is wrong with fornication and adultery? Is it just a physical thing? Is it just the aspect of the sexual union? Is that what's wrong? That a person has a sexual relationship with someone that they don't have a right to have a sexual relationship with? Certainly that's involved in it. And adultery and fornication are sexual sins. But you go back to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 and we recognize that what the rite of Hebrews says about marriage is that it's honorable among all and the bed is undefiled in marriage but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It's a violation of a covenant and a violation of an allegiance. It's a violation of loyalty. It's a violation of one flesh for a person to go outside a marriage relationship and commit fornication or adultery. In the government terms what we might call that is treason wouldn't we? because a person makes a commitment to serve their country whether it be in some government official position or maybe as a soldier I will take an oath, I will stand up and I will defend my nation I will defend my country but then they go the other direction and they aid and abet the enemy or they go and they find you see someone on the other side uh, and they join themselves to that other enemy isn't active aggressive against persons a person's own nation or their own people that takes place. Uh, uh, Brother Wayne in his lesson said that he came across a new word and it kind of was a new word for me too in terms of describing this. uh, Perfidy, if I'm saying that right, is a form of deception where one side promises to act in good faith with the intention of breaking the good faith promise. What that means is perfidy is the idea that you go out and you say, okay, uh, you and I can get along I'll do for you, you do for me. But the whole time, you don't have any intention of doing that. You go into it knowing that you're going to break it. That you're not going to keep the promise. He says it's akin to the aspect of two sides uh, uh, on a battlefield. And one fellow sticks up the white flag and waves it around and says, I give up, I give up. Come on, let's make a treaty. And so the other fellow breaks his white flag out and he comes in. But the guy you see who first waved the white flag had no intention of ever ceasing the aggression. So as soon as he gets everybody else to lay their arms down, then he slaughters them all. (laughs) That's perfidy. And so the aspect here in the spiritual terms, it is the height of betrayal and unfaithfulness for an individual to engage in what is such a severe union without recognizing the severe consequences and having the very severe responsibility of keeping it. Matthew Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14, Malachi describes those individuals who were putting away their wives and he said they are treacherous when they put away their wives. Now, I don't, when he says there that God hates divorce and he talks about divorce as being treachery, I don't think he's saying, you see, that there's a treacherous way to put someone away and a non-treacherous way to put someone away. He's simply saying that that's the character of the breaking of the commitment of the marriage. It is treacherous. It's not just about sexual relationships. It is the breaking of a covenant to which God has witnessed and that God will judge. God will judge those who abandon it. So Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19, when he answers questions about whether or not a person can put away their wife for every cause, goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and uses that very same language. They have become one flesh. What God has joined together, man should not put asunder. And so the implications here are pretty powerful. From the standpoint of those original, term, original terminology, First Corinthians chapter six and verse fifteen, Paul uses this terminology to talk about this aspect. You see, of joining yourself to a harlot, and he's talking about immorality within the church, within the church family. Can it be tolerated? Can it be tolerated? Is it okay? Does it have any real implications? And Paul's argument to that, and you think about how many ways you might answer that question or, or argue that with someone who would be addressing that issue that Paul's argument flows from Genesis chapter 2. Now, not just in the context of marriage, but in the context of a person being joined to Christ. In the context of the relationship that I have to Jesus Christ as being a part of His church, being a part of His bride. Our allegiance belongs to one another. Our allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ. And we can't go off and sin and and, uh, involve ourselves in immorality and sinfulness without breaking that relationship. And Paul's explanation of that Is if a person goes out and joins himself to a prostitute. He's become one flesh. He's broken that relationship. And it's wrong in the very worst way. In James chapter 4. James says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now again, the language flows from this very uh, uh, idea of commitment and relationship and loyalty and family and belonging to one another. You join yourself to God. And so he calls them adulterers and adulteresses, not because they were all engaged in sexual immorality, but because the issue here is whether or not you would be on God's side or whether you would not be on God's side. And you must choose. There has to be a sense of allegiance to the cause of Christ. If you choose the other side, you automatically make yourself an enemy of God. Jesus said no one can serve two masters for either you will hate the one and love the other or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Why? Because there's this one flesh concept that says when you put yourself in a relationship with Christ you are absolutely committed to being faithful to him and loyal to him and you cannot serve two masters. Now it's fascinating to me how many passages there are that deal with the aspect of spiritual commitment and avoiding sin and being holy people that are based on this very same concept that began in Genesis chapter 2 when God brought woman to the man and said, this is a special relationship. And Adam said, yes, it is. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is special to me in every way. And what God was saying and what Moses was commenting upon in terms of that particular event is that this has profound implications, not only in the marriage, but in all the relationships that we have with God. So you get to the time in which God is choosing out his special people Israel to go in and possess the land and what's he tell them? He says don't go in there and marry those unbelievers. So there were specific prohibitions against intermarriage between God's people and the Canaanites. Why? Because God just wanted to make their lives miserable? No, because the principle was of an absolute single allegiance to God and God alone that involved not only the marriage relationship but as well their religious commitment to not serving idols and not being influenced to serve idols. And that goes back to Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, again where that language is brought up. So being one flesh, joining ourselves in a committed relationship, whether we're talking about the marriage and a marriage ceremony, or whether we're talking about our coming to Christ and becoming Christians and serving him all the days of our life, this single one-flesh relationship, you see, uh, is very important. It is critical to our relationship to God and to one another. And it's about allegiance. And it's about loyalty. It's about family. It's about who we are at the deepest level. Not just about what we do, but ultimately about who we are. So it goes beyond the physical and goes beyond the sexual relationships that individuals might engage in. It involves that which we talked about this morning. The thoughts that precede the action. Changing the way we think and how we approach life and how we approach our relationship to life. That doesn't mean those other things don't matter. It simply means that they are symptoms of a larger and a greater problem. When it exists, but when it's right, when it's good, how good is it? You know, you know some folks that have good marriages. You've seen them be committed to one another year after year after year, and decade after decade. Maybe you get on down the road, and you realize you're two people that were married maybe when they were very young, but it's not the same as it was before. Now they are so committed to each other, and they are so united to one another. It's as though they're one person. (laughs) It's as though they're one person. And when it's good like that, it's good, isn't it? In fact, there's nothing better than when it's like that. The same thing applies spiritually. You find people that joined the Lord, maybe when they didn't know much else except that they needed to be baptized and if they didn't, they were going to go to hell. And they came to the Lord, maybe out of fear, maybe out of very, uh, very limited knowledge of what God had done for them, but now they are years down the road because they've joined themselves and they've been responsible for the commitment. They are so united with God that they cannot be torn apart. That even death itself will not separate those people from their God or from their Savior. They are one with Him. And that's what Jesus wanted. And that's what He found in the people of the first century. Individuals that were willing to say, It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We are one person. I am Him and He is me. And He lives in me. And that's exactly what God wants for all of us. He wants to be one with us as His people. But that takes a commitment on our part. That takes being willing to join Him, to, be, to die with Him, and to be resurrected with Him, that we might share in His life. With Christ, of the most important words in all the Scriptures. Because what we do with Christ is all that matters. You'll die, but if you don't die with Christ, it won't matter. It'll be a tragedy. You could be resurrected in some way, but if you're not resurrected with Christ, it won't matter. So does it matter if you're buried with Christ? Yes, it does. To be buried with anybody else is meaningless. But to be buried with Christ in baptism, in the water of baptism, is the most blessed grave you and I could ever enter into because it is attached and implies with a necessary resurrection to a new mind. If you're not a Christian, you need to be baptized. You need to die with Christ. You need to be buried with Him. You need to be resurrected with Him. You need to join yourself, one, with Him. Can we help you do that? Let's stand and say.